today from the Global Lane. The former CIA director's shocking and revealing notes. There was a conspiracy here, and to a certain degree, uh, it, it worked. War heating up in the South Caucasus. It is clearly religious, and at this point, Turkey has jumped in with mercenaries, actually jihadis. The economy and COVID-19. Will Americans vote with their pocketbooks? Are you better off than you were four years ago? And churches losing young people. Are Christians too judgmental? And it's all right here on the Global Lane. No military solution. Those are the words of NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, who's calling for a ceasefire between Christians and Muslims in the South Caucasus. Well, fighting between Armenia and Azerbaijan is escalating. The death toll is rising over a disputed region known as Nagorno-Karabakh. It's the worst fighting there since the Soviet Union collapsed in the 1990s, when both countries claimed ownership of that territory. Now there's greater urgency to stop the renewed war as Syrian and Turkish mercenaries enter the fray. Well, here with more is Family Research Council senior fellow Layla Gilbert. Ms. Gilbert is also a fellow at the Hudson Institute. Layla, it's good to have you with us. So these two former Soviet states, one Christian, the other Muslim, are at it again. What's happening and why now? Well, it seems to be a chronic situation that has flared up again for various reasons, but it is definitely a religious uh, conflict. And one of the things that's very hard to find in the regular media is that that's the reason. It's usually referred to as ethnic or territorial, but it is clearly a religious. And at this point, Turkey has jumped in with mercenaries, actually jihadis. And this is making it all the more volatile. Yes, Erdogan is, uh, seems to be siding, of course, by no surprise to anyone, with uh, Azerbaijan. Why, uh, why is that, and, and what is he up to? Well, he has an agenda of his own, and he seems to be invading several places at the same time with mercenaries and his own troops. And, you know, he's been uh, sending a lot of the same kind of mercenaries into Libya. And now we have him doing the same thing here. Um, his agenda is a neo-Ottoman empire, as far as anyone can tell, with him as the caliph. But he's encroaching on so many different countries right now. It's really rather astonishing. And perhaps his NATO membership gives him some kind of license to get away with this. It's very hard to understand it. Now, now most Americans right now are concerned about COVID-19, jobs, school, also the debates that are coming up, uh, the election as well. Why should they care about a decades-old dispute between countries that many of us couldn't even locate on a map? I might not care myself, but I actually visited Nagorno-Karabakh in, in the early 2000s, and I talked to some of the people there. They're Christian people. They're small families. They're a beautiful community, and I talked to the archbishop about how God had protected them in the last uh, dispute that took place. It was a war in the early 90s, and I was so moved by the people there, and I think Perhaps the reason I care so much is because I know they're my brothers and sisters, and I know they've been through this before, many disabilities, many injuries. 30,000 people died in the last conflict. So I care about them because I love them as brothers and sisters, but it's also a completely unjust 
invasion, and these people have lived in peace. They are not troublemakers, and it's it's very assertive on the part of the jihadis, and also just on political movements and various other motives that come into the picture. Well, back to Turkey. I must remind our viewers that in 1915, the Turks committed genocide against the Armenian people. So I'm sure Armenia is extremely concerned about those Turkish and Syrian mercenaries getting involved and, of course, President Erdogan's potential role in the conflict. Tell us more about that. Well, that's absolutely right. In fact, I was speaking to someone in Armenia just a couple of days ago, and he said the Armenians see this as a continuation of that jihad, which, by the way, was referred to as a jihad even back in the early days, in the early 1900s. So this is nothing new, and it is a dangerous and terrifying situation for the little community there in Nagorno-Karabakh in Stepanakert, the capital, because it's so small. and. The protection is necessary, and the world, as you implied, you know, most people have other things on their mind. But this is an, a continuation of a jihad that's gone on for now more than a century. Well, we've seen protests in support of the Armenians in places like Athens, Greece, also in Los Angeles. The Germans have been involved. I think uh, President Macron of France has also called for a ceasefire. So. Even if we end up with a ceasefire, how do we stop the bloodshed in the long term? What's the solution for Nagorno-Karabakh? I wish I knew the answer to that. I, I think the solution would be leaving the people alone or else making it possible for them to be integrated into Armenia proper, which is they're very close, I think 30 miles away, but they're an enclave. And this is part of the problem is that they are disputed. So I think the dispute about the land needs to be resolved, and it certainly needs to be resolved by integrating that Christian Armenian community into Armenia, if, if there's any settlement at all. Okay, Layla Gilbert of the Family Research Council and the Hudson Institute, thank you for your insights today. Thank you so much. Declassified notes belonging to former CIA director John Brennan from July 2016 reveal that Brennan informed President Obama of a plan by Hillary Clinton to tie then-candidate Donald Trump to Russia as, quote, a means of distracting the public from her use of a private email server. CIA intelligence on the matter was sent to the FBI for investigation. Now, President Trump has ordered that all related documents be declassified to bring transparency to the FBI's Operation Crossfire Hurricane. Here to provide some insights is former assistant U.S. attorney in Northern California, John O'Connor. John, it's so good to have you with us again. So what more do you think will be revealed by these declassified documents? Well, I think that we will find that there were more of these shoes to drop. There are other facts which were not provided to the FISA court. I think Radcliffe uh, declassified the big one with uh, Brennan because it deserves its own storyline. Uh, but basically, it gives us the theme that the Obama administration knew very well that this was about Russian disinformation. Uh, they, and, and when I say disinformation, I'm talking about the sources that Christopher Steele used. The sources Christopher Steele used were all Russians. Uh, the primary subsource was suspected of being a Russian spy. 
So we have some spies or ex-spies of Russia combining with Hillary. Obama had to approve the expenditure of the funds because he controlled the DNC money. So what do we have here, Gary? We have a massive conspiracy to affect the election in 2016 and also a full of coup on Trump, but a massive conspiracy with Russia to do that and our own intelligence agencies. And that's the irony of it, that we've spent three or four years talking about how Trump supposedly colluded with Russia, where it was all a complete hoax. It's exactly the opposite is true, and it's very profound. Uh, now, what I expect will happen in the future here, well, the, there will be more bits and pieces which are confirmatory, which confirm that the FBI did not tell the truth to the FISA court. There will be more and more details that will sort of break the back of this thing. Well, back back to Christopher Steele. He's the former British agent on the FBI's payroll. Uh, what can What more can you tell us about that? Well, first of all, you just said it. The FBI willingly colluded, if, if you want to use that word, with Steele to produce this effect. And Brennan also was colluding. And Brennan was using Steele's information to go, for instance, to Harry Reid, who's known to be a leaker, to tell him. He briefed the Gang of Eight, trying to get this out into the press. So yes, there is uh, uh, was a conspiracy here. and. Uh, and, and to a certain degree, uh, it, it worked. Uh, but I think it points to criminal liability. That's my thought, Gary. Well, let's go beyond the FBI. Let's look at the CIA. Of course, we mentioned Brennan. Well, how about Gina Haspel, the current CIA director? She was station chief in London at the time when the British allegedly helped to spy on the Trump campaign. So what's the likelihood that Haspel will willingly declassify uh, those documents, turnover documents about CIA and British intelligence involvement in that effort, because it may not look too good for her. Well, that's right. And let me point you and your viewers, uh, Gary, to uh, the so-called Maltese professor that supposedly was the Russian-connected professor who started this whole thing by uh, honing in on Papadopoulos, on George Papadopoulos, and telling him that the Russians had emails on Hillary. Uh, the Mueller people and Comey have always depicted him as being some sort of a Russian asset. That's always been nonsense. He's clearly a Western intelligence asset, very much connected to British intelligence. And at the time this whole thing started, uh, British intelligence and American intelligence had formed an interagency group along with the FBI. So they knew that this, not only did they know that this professor was not a Russian asset, they sent him in there. And so you're going to find that the CIA folks overseas uh, knew that this person was sent in there and that a false story was uh, set up about him because Crossfire Hurricane was therefore started on the basis of phony information, claiming that this guy was some sort of a Russian asset. He wasn't. And uh, uh, our current CIA director knew that. So that doesn't look too good for her. And of course, uh, what didn't look too good for FBI director, former FBI director James Comey, was his testimony on the Hill. Uh, he seemed to have 
amnesia there about crossfire hurricane and FISA. We haven't seen much from Prosecutor John Durham's investigation, just I think one guilty plea from FBI attorney Kevin Kleinsmith. So what do you expect will happen now? Well, I've never thought that Comey would get indicted because he's too far up the chain and all he has to say is, I don't remember, I don't remember, I don't remember. Comey is going to claim, has always been uh, able to claim that, gosh, he was too high up uh, the line for this. Now, what is interesting about Brennan's notes is that's the first documentary evidence that we have that he was told about this. So his only defense is to say, I don't remember. It will probably work in terms of staving off an indictment. I hope it doesn't, but it probably will. He knew all about it. He was behind the whole thing. Uh, so he is being disingenuous. He claims Trump is just like a mafioso. The mafioso here is Comey. Uh, I think McCabe has more of the bullseye on his back. He had a sudden attack of, of COVID fear this last week and didn't want to testify for very good reasons because he would either have to take the Fifth Amendment or perjure himself. So there is hope that there will be some indictments. I think they're getting close. And I hope Barr does not let the election stand in the way. There's nobody that would be indicted that has anything to do with running for office. A lot more to come. It's like peeling off the layers of an onion. John O'Connor, former federal prosecutor in California, thank you for sharing your time and insights. As always, appreciate you. Thanks, Gary. Good talking to you. When it comes to presidential elections, it seems Americans most often vote based on their pocketbook. Remember when Ronald Reagan asked, are you better off today than you were four years ago? Also, Clinton strategist James Carville, when he said, it's the economy, stupid. So how is the U.S. economy doing with only four weeks to go before this election? Well, Financial Issues national television and radio host Dan Celia is here to set us straight. Dan, it's always good to talk with you. So has the economy bounced back as well as the president had hoped? I think it's probably bounced back better than the president had hoped. I think it bounced back a whole lot better than most analysts had predicted or had hoped for. Uh, it's really amazing, Gary, when you think about where we are. We're at a 7.9% unemployment rate. There were some, including Federal Reserve presidents, that were talking about 20% unemployment at this time. And here we are at 7.9%. So obviously, there are more people going back to work. And um, that doesn't happen unless the economy is thriving. We've seen great productivity. We've seen very good manufacturing. Service sector has improved. Almost every indicator and sector of the economy is doing a lot better now than it was and way better than it was expected to. People still care more about their pocketbook than they do anything else. Well, with the COVID-19 shutdowns continuing, uh, if people are asked, are you better off than you were four years ago, many would probably say no, wouldn't they? Uh, I would suspect that most around the country, when we look at especially the bigger cities and what is going on in those large cities, they would probably say no. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the economy is worse off uh, than it was four years ago, even though the pandemic has caused individual families and segments of the population around the country uh, to not have fully recovered yet. 
Dan, I've got to ask you about this, and I'm sure you heard it. Uh, unemployment was one issue raised by moderator Chris Wallace in the first presidential debate. He said more jobs were created during the last three years of the Obama administration than during the first three years of Trump. So what are the facts? Is that true? It's not even close to being true. It, it wasn't accurate at all. This president has created more jobs than the entire Obama administration. And, you know, the interesting part is you don't have to look very far. This isn't coming from some conservative think tank. We only have to go to the BLS, the government's own numbers, uh, to see what has happened. And this president has not only restored more jobs uh, than any president where they have been lost, he's also created more jobs than any president in modern history. Yes, and he talked about manufacturing jobs, which I guess the Obama administration said uh, were dead. Uh, what about the stock market, Dan? Many records have been broken under Trump. It seems uh, that the stock market is doing well overall, but does that matter to the average voter as much as, say, their bank accounts being able to pay their bills? Uh, probably not, Gary, because I think the average voter doesn't understand that whether you have stocks or not, it still matters that the market is doing well because inevitably that will mean good things for a worker and an economy and opportunities. But no, I don't think it matters as much. But I think what does matter is minority unemployment, women unemployment, unemployment in general being lower than it's been, uh, labor participation rate uh, skyrocketing compared to the 50-year low this president was left with. So when we look at those things, those things do matter. And I think what is going to be a huge factor in the election, Gary, is that everybody knows somebody now that has a job or had a job or had an opportunity to work when they didn't. And most people have the common sense to realize that we've had a global health crisis, a global pandemic, and that anything bad that has happened between February 1st and now is as a result of a pandemic. And those people with any common sense at all are not blaming President Trump for that. They know better, and they also understand now, because they've seen it happen, that this president is the best suited to restore those jobs and get the economy back on track again. So they're looking ahead to the next four years and which man will do the best in keeping things going. So thank exactly. you, Dan. We appreciate you for setting us straight today. Always appreciate you being with us. You're welcome, Gary. I always appreciate being here. Thank you for what you do. God bless. During a recent podcast with North Carolina Pastor William Barber, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton said it's time, quote, for the church to take a hard look at itself and try to figure out how it can be a real partner in this moment of moral awakening. A lot of people are leaving the church. A lot of young people are leaving the church, in part because the way they understand what Christianity has become is, you know, so judgmental, so alienating uh, that they think to themselves, well, I don't need that. I don't want to be part of that. I think many evangelical Christians agree that we do need a moral awakening, just not the leftist woke ideology Mrs. Clinton is advocating.
Yes, many American young people perceive Christians as being judgmental. That's because of churches like the one I attended years ago. An unmarried pregnant 17-year-old was forced to leave the church because she was viewed as a sinful influence on other teens. I opposed that decision because she admitted her mistake, and the young woman insisted that her sexual sin would not cause her to commit another sin. Instead of aborting her baby, she decided to choose life. Christians rejected her at a time when she needed them the most. How do you think that affected her faith or the teens who knew her? No wonder young people are leaving. While some churches are like that, many more are like the one I currently attend. There's no judgment, just a lot of love for people and solid Bible teaching, love of God's Word, preaching the truth. You see, some young people mistake truth for judgment because they haven't been taught the truth. Others just don't want to hear the truth. It's offensive to them. They don't want to be reminded of their sin. They often say, what's right for you isn't necessarily right for me. But rejecting the Ten Commandments doesn't erase them. God still expects us to try to follow His laws. He knows we'll often fail, and that's why a holy and perfect God sent Jesus to us. Jesus said in John 3:17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Rejecting Christ and absolutes doesn't mean they don't exist. It just means you choose not to embrace them. When atheists say they don't believe in God, that doesn't mean God doesn't exist. He's still there. You may not believe in Him, but He believes in you. You've probably heard people quote Jesus and Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Yes, He is judge, and we will all stand in judgment at the end of our lives, but many people misunderstand that verse. A few verses later, Jesus reminds us to take out the plank from our own eye. Then we will see clearly to remove the speck from our brother's eye. He's not saying don't judge others. He's saying don't judge hypocritically. First, we must be concerned about the sin in our own lives and act to remove it before approaching other Christians and lovingly pointing out their sin. And always we must tell people that Jesus Christ is the way out. He forgives sin. So what is required of us? Micah 6.8 tells us it's to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Folks, that's the only way the church will retain and attract young people, not by acquiescing to the culture, but by advocating justice for all people, honoring God, and in kindness, lovingly sharing the truth. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Parlor, and Twitter. And until next time, be blessed.